welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, it's been a couple weeks since Nationals finished. We had an amazing final round between UCLA and Harvard that we uh, talked about a little bit on our last episode. But of course, we are thrilled to get into uh, more detail on uh, on this episode. We'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, but, you know, Drew, over the last couple of weeks, as as Nationals has has finished and, and the season has kind of uh, been in the rearview mirror, I've just been thinking about how much of a great year it was. Um, I've heard so many great things just about Nationals. Like we mentioned last time, you know, we weren't there, uh, but I've just heard wonderful things about Nationals as a whole. Um, I noticed a couple things just from, you know, from observing from afar, from watching the final round that that Rhodes went and got a, a a federal judge, I believe a retired federal judge who was a black woman to preside over the final round. I know they had a charity component to their nationals. Um, I know that they worked really, really hard to just make sure that the entire experience was great for teams. And I've heard just so many wonderful things about the entire experience. So, so before we get into the specifics of the final round, I just kind of wanted to acknowledge that I think that nationals was fantastic and, and it's such a massive amount of effort and a massive amount of work to put on a, you know, AMTA's spectacle, right? AMTA's biggest sort of gathering every year. And so I've just heard some really great things about how nationals went. Uh, and I just think we've got so much to celebrate about this year. Uh, and Drew, one of the things I'm really excited to do, of course, is to talk to Michael Blaine and Connor Nixon, who we have on the show today. They're the UCLA captains. And I'm just, I'm stoked to get a chance to talk to them about everything UCLA and, and all the details of that final round. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I think we're, we're probably going to say it a few times, but it was such a fun final round to watch. I mean, it was just up there in my mind as one of the best final rounds I've ever seen. And I, I can't wait to talk to Connor and Michael. I'm, I'm definitely excited to dive in with them. Yeah, I think they're going to have some super interesting perspective. Um, we just wanted to do a quick topic rundown, um, on just one or two small things before we get to that interview. Um, I did want to mention, you know, we're going to do a full trial by combat episode like we always do, but we, we mentioned briefly in a previous episode that, that, um, UCLA and Drexel were doing this play in tournament for the first time, uh, ever. And that happened, uh, soon after nationals. It was eight. Um, people from eight programs who had never been represented at trial by combat before. And it was a zoom tournament where they played from eight to four to two. The two winners of that tournament were Michael Chandler of Brown and friend of the pod, Ben Wallace of South Carolina. They joined the other field of 14, which is just a stacked field with some fantastic people, folks that we've had on the show, folks that people will recognize. Um, and so I think it's just going to be a great trial by combat. Uh, I didn't get a chance to watch all of the rounds, but but I watched a little bit here and there. And I've, of course, seen Ben and Michael go. They're both fantastic. I think Michael's incredible. He he He's someone I've mentioned on the show before. I don't understand why Ben wasn't in the initial field of 14. I just don't get it. I think that was weird. And that's not to take away from anyone who was in the field of 14. It's just, I, it was weird to me that Ben with his credentials wasn't there. But he's in the field. That's ultimately what matters. So, Drew, any thoughts on just the, the play-in tournament and, and looking forward to talking about trial by combat before too long? So I'll, I'll say very briefly, I, I I honestly don't remember if we ever actually formally did this or not. But I, I when when the play-in tournament was initially announced, remember we said, we have a lot of thoughts on the idea of this play-in tournament, and we'll talk about them later. <laughs> yeah. And then I don't think we ever did. Yeah, I don't think but so. But I'll say that my my 
I think it's a fun, like, concept. Okay, we're going to include more people, give more people opportunities. I just have some massive concerns with the execution and specifically the qualifications. And I mean, look, I think that, you know, you mentioned Ben Wallace. He's obviously so, such a well-awarded competitor and such a strong one. And I'm, I'm glad he made it because I think he clearly deserves it. And, you know, he made it out anyway. But I think that you you look at that and you say, okay, well, maybe should he have been in, in that first group? The only argument against it to me is just that they haven't made it to nationals the last few years. But, I mean, they're so good. Like, I feel like that's I, – I feel silly making that argument. Um, that being said, I I am of the belief that – and my overarching thought that would fix this play-in tournament, in my view, is that I think that the qualification should not be, has your program sent someone to TBC before, but instead – did your team make nationals this year? And the reason why I think that that is a better metric is, and it, to be clear, that doesn't mean that the top 14 are only people that made nationals. Yeah. Um, I, I frankly think that they, they probably uh, should mostly be that, but I think it's a better metric because as of right now, if you are a student from LaSalle or, Rochester or Rutgers or um, trying to think of another good example. Well, I'll just, those are good examples though. Yeah. I think those are the three examples I can think of that are, I mean, it's not that they're not good programs, but I mean, I don't think that the intention is to prevent a new, uh, uh, an up and coming student from one of those schools from making the TBC initial round of 14 just because they happen to have someone in it four years ago when the program was very different or when that one individual happened to be like it just it doesn't make sense to me and i don't think that it's serving any point um and i think that the better determiner is hey you made nationals your chance to show that you belong is go get an all-american if you didn't get that opportunity, your chance is the play-in tournament. Uh, that's kind of, to me, my intuition on it, and I think they should make that change. You know, Phil, Justin, if you're listening, feel free to do it. You don't need to to credit me on it. Just know that, you know, I thought of it. But um, <laughs> I, I think that that would be a better change to this play-in tournament and would be a vast improvement to it. Yeah, you know what? I think you're 100% right. Um and it's interesting just looking at this year's field. I believe of the original original 14, I think 12 of them came from teams that made nationals. And then you had two in there, um, you know, who were, who were who fell short. And then of the eight students for the play in tournament, which just since I have the list in front of me was um, Isaiah Benuelos from Dickinson, Michael Chandler from Brown, Lanaya Davidson from Maryland College Park, Juliana Kentner from Arkansas, Jackson Kundi from Wisconsin, Madison, Mary Pat Peterson from Santa Clara. Annalyn St. Ledger from American and Ben Wallace from South Carolina. I believe the only two in there to make nationals were Arkansas and Wisconsin. Oh, well, and Brown and Brown. Oh, right. And Brown. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So most of the play in field, not all of it, but most of it was teams that didn't make nationals. Um, I tend to agree with you. I think that, that, that qualification, like, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of really good examples and I'm looking at the 2018 TBC field. You have schools like Northern Illinois or Arizona or UT Chattanooga, very, very good teams, but not perennial nationals teams, right. um, who have not, as far as I'm aware, sent people back 
uh, to TBC after then. And, and yeah, they should be eligible. Um, and, and candidly just like, I don't know. I, I had a student this year that I thought should be eligible and, and she shouldn't be ineligible because two years earlier, Sydney Gaskins existed. So I, and I Thomas tend, is already, and Thomas is already. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> so, but yeah. And like, we're obviously not the best example, right. but like I, as a general rule, I think you're totally right. But I was thrilled to see Michael and Ben make the make the field of 16. I think they're both threats to win the whole thing. Um, and, and I agree as a general matter, inc- inclusivity and listening to some of the concerns that were raised about the makeup of the field. Good on Phil and Justin for coming up with something to do that. I think it could just be tweaked a little bit more. Um, Drew, I know that you had a couple other thoughts on a few other things before we get to the interview. So yeah. I'll kick it back to you. A thought. It is definitely a thought. Um, so <laughs> as people probably recall, we've spoken a few times about the fact that there have been some very public sanctions recently. Um, sanctions in which we all know the team that complained. We all know the team that got sanctioned. Um, and we know that the result had an effect on the outcome of those rounds. In one case, whether a team made nationals or not. We are still yet to hear what happened. We're yet to hear why AMTA decided what they did. We're yet to hear anything on those situations. And I am really concerned that AMTA is dragging their feet, hoping we will all just forget and not worry about it anymore. I I think that if you've decided to make these sanctions this public this way in a way where we all know who was affected by it. You owe it to those teams to publish something so we can, we can all understand what, what happened. Um, I think that it's just really dangerous when you don't, we, people start getting speculative, but also uh, there is a important level of, you know, I want to keep my program safe and that individuals should be able to learn from the mistakes of others and figure out, oh, wow, I'm really glad I now know what such and such team did that got them in trouble. Now we know not to do something like that, similar to that, or remotely close to that. I understand that AMTA believes it's really obvious and that anyone that dares break this rule is doing it intentionally and maliciously. Um, You're just wrong. Like, these are kids. They wouldn't do it if they thought it was wrong, in my opinion. I think that we continue to have this issue because there is a lack of clarity on what AMTA and the CIC believes is an improper invention it warrants a sanction and for them to not publish more opinions on what happens that leads to a sanction, I just think is hugely problematic. And I really, really hope that I'm wrong. I hope that it is right on, on the cusp of being published and I hope that we get it very soon. Um, but I, I think that it's really, really, really important that AMTA publishes this and I, yeah, I'm just, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's taken this long, but all I will say is, is that to the rest of the community, we, we cannot forget, we cannot let them, um, brush it under the rug from the perspective of, I don't want to see more teams get punished for something that is avoidable, that if they had just known, 
hey, you can't do that, that they wouldn't have done it. That, that I think that's my overall thought. Um, I just really hope that we publish it soon. Yeah, I think all I'll add on this is I don't, I'm not going to try to get into, you know, why something is or isn't happening. I know this is a complicated subject. Uh, my thought is just pretty straightforward, which is I'm looking at the, the AMTA rule book right now, and it's rule 9.7.6, publishing a final sanction upon either the expiration of the time to appeal a sanction or the decision of the full board imposing a sanction. Um, AMTA shall, not may, shall create a public version um, and shall uh, put that public version on the AMTA website and other public channels. Now, it doesn't say when. I mean, it says after X date. It doesn't give a deadline, but it is just a little strange to me that we haven't seen anything yet, um, particularly since we did have such a significant sanction that caused the makeup of the uh, of the nationals field to change. And we know there was a sanction that, by the way, we've subsequently learned, I think in our last episode, we said that the in-round sanction or in-tournament sanction that occurred at nationals did not change a ballot. We've actually learned we were wrong about that, and it did change a ballot. Um, and so... Like those two sanctions in particular, even though we're done with those cases, I think it's just really important for those to be made public as soon as possible. Yeah, I know that the season doesn't start until August and, and whatever, but I just think it's really important that we learn that information soon, um, just from a transparency perspective so that everyone is on the same page about what the CIC is thinking moving forward. So, you know, while I don't share every single one of your <laughs> thoughts, Drew, and, and I don't say that about like, like no, I, no, no, I no. think that your, way of looking at it is not unreasonable which is like hey you know it's really important that we do this promptly and quickly it's been a month since nationals it's been nearly two months since the sanction that caused you know a team to lose their nationals bid i don't think it's unreasonable for the community to expect to have seen a public sanction notation on the website by that point so i definitely get where you're coming from and let me just last i look i'm not i'm not trying to come down on people like yeah I know a lot of the people on the CIC, they're all very wonderful people and, and I, I'm not, I'm not trying to come at them. Yeah. No, um, I don't think I you think are. That, I think that I will be very straightforward about the fact that I think it was very problematic that the pre-nationals sanction wasn't published prior to nationals from the perspective of when, when a team brought a complaint to, you know, those little in, in tournament review bodies, and had the little mini moot court round about whether or not a improper invention occurred, you, you kind of, in order to properly argue those, you need to know, well, what, what is the bar? What, what do I need to prove? Um, what, what, what are things that are not okay? And what are things that are okay? And I just think that having, having a, I, I, I know that AMTA gets so upset about using the word precedent and that they don't want people to start citing precedent to them. But I'm sorry. I just think that's the most natural way to, to properly adjudicate these matters. And in all honesty, that's what lawyers do. We're trying to train lawyers. I don't have a problem with them using it that way. I know AMTA does, but I just, I think that that's to me a much healthier way to to establish these rules is you know through a, a a understanding of okay well these are some of the the past cases and this is what the holdings of those cases were you know if you can 
point out the parallels between that case and your case, that's likely going to be the same result. I think that that's good legal thinking. I think it's the way that people tend to approach this. And what is being asked of students now is to just kind of blindly follow the 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 rule without that knowing and understanding of that precedent. So I, I think that I, I just want AMTA to change their overall approach to it. And I'm probably in the minority with them on that. And I doubt that they will, but I can hope. Yeah. And I don't know if you're in the minority. I, I, I definitely think that everything that you were just saying is completely reasonable. And it's important for teams to have as much access to this information as possible, especially as we move further and further into this era of, you know, having like a lot of intense review on invention of fact, which I don't necessarily think is always a bad thing. It's just a complicated subject. Um, so we'll get to our interview in just a moment. Uh, a lot of exciting things coming up. Um, I, I think this is a kind of an open secret in the community at this point, but I've heard a lot of um, rumblings for lack of a better term that we may be hearing an announcement soon about rookie rumble returning uh, for this summer, which I think is super exciting. Thought that tournament was a huge success uh last summer and and I think that it's a really cool thing. I hope it becomes a fixture uh in the Ampto world. So uh we're gonna take a quick break uh before we get to our interview. Drew, any other thoughts on anything before we uh head to our interview with Michael and Connor? Uh no, I'm looking forward to chatting with them. I think there's gonna be a lot of interesting things to discuss. And uh yeah, it's definitely a a kind of more relaxed part of the mock trial season, but definitely with a lot of fun things coming up in the hopper. So Excited to get to Trial by Combat, hopefully Rookie Rumble, all that good stuff. Yeah, no, I love that while summer slows down a little bit, we still got a lot of interesting things to talk about between Trial by Combat, the board meeting, and Rookie Rumble. Plenty of things to to record some podcast episodes about. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to chat with Michael Blaine and Connor Nixon of UCLA. So stay with us, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Mock Review. We are thrilled and absolutely thrilled to have on the show today two members, the captains of the UCLA Mock Trial National Championship team. Of course, as everyone who's listening to this uh, episode knows, just about a month ago, by the time this episode is being released, UCLA defeated Harvard in an absolutely incredible final round to win the 2023 National Championship. And we have Michael Blaine and Connor Nixon of UCLA on the show to talk all about their path to that final round, the final round and everything in between. So Michael, Connor, it's great to have you guys on. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Hey, you know, thanks for having us. We uh, we appreciate it. Yep. Happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have both of you on the show. We've got a ton of interesting things to talk about. Um, and before we do that, because of course we want the uh, listening audience to get an opportunity to get to know you guys and, and your background in mock trial. So Michael, I'm going to start with you. We always ask our guests their origin story, how they got started in mock trial. So take us back to the beginning and give us your origin story of how mock trial started for you. Well, the beginning, I, I guess it would start in high school. I did mock trial all four years in high school. I started out as an expert witness. Uh, that didn't go well in college. So <laughs> started out as an expert witness, ended up becoming an attorney. I applied to UCLA mock. Um, that was the online COVID year. So that's when everything was online, applied with that class. And from there, I've been doing it since. I'm a junior. So it would have been, this was my junior run, three years of UCLA mock trial. And you said you started in high school. So did you do mock trial for, for several years in high school or was it, you know, what, what was your high school experience like? 
It was about four years. So all four years of high school started as a witness, then was defense attorney for the next three years. Um, my high school didn't do much. I'm from Bakersfield, Kern County, and we always lost to Elena Young from Santa Barbara's team. So I didn't go much farther than that. <laughs> okay. Interesting. It's always fun to hear about like when you have uh, people who are well-known in, in the college circuit who play each other on the high school circuit. I always think that's fun. Um, Connor, I'll kick it over to you. Your origin story. How did mock trial start for you? Yeah, I've been doing mock trial for seven years now. Started in my sophomore year of high school. Um, honestly, at that time, I didn't want to do it at all. My mom forced me to try out. I really tried to get out of it so many times. She said, just go in and give a tryout. It was terrible. I did so, so, so bad. And then I got on the team anyway, and I've just kind of been doing it ever since. So I've uh, seven years as an expert witness and an attorney. So, I mean, you said seven years as an expert witness and an attorney. So was it kind of, and, and forgive me for not knowing this in as much detail, but do you go back and forth or you, because of course you were an attorney in the final round. So do you one on one side, one on the other, or, or do you have kind of a specialty? Yeah, it's, it's one on one side and one on the other. It's usually defense attorney, usually the uh, prosecution or plaintiff expert witness. Interesting. Okay. Well, I appreciate you both kind of taking us through the history. I know Drew's got some questions about UCLA more generally. So, so Drew, you want to take it over from here? Sure. Well, first of all, I will echo what Ben said. It really is an honor to have you guys both on. Uh, I, I told you guys this off the mics beforehand, but it was truly one of the most impressive final rounds I think I've ever seen and is going to be a, a definite contender in my book for um, my favorite final round ever. Yeah. Um, so glad to have you guys on. But I'll, I'll say this. I, I want to kind of dive in a little bit more to what UCLA mock trial is like. Um, and so I'll just kind of start. And, you know, Michael, I'll, I'll go to you first. But, you know, Connor, obviously chime in afterwards if you have more to add to it. But Michael, can you just take me through what exactly UCLA mock trial is like from the beginning? You know, how's the structure like? Are you coached? How involved are your coaches? Um, you know, what what is it like to be a UCLA mock trial member? So UCLA mock trial is intense, but it's awesome. So that they're both ends of it. Obviously, it's it's a historical program, has been doing great, continues to do great. It's a large program with a bunch of alumni and a bunch of coaches. So really, when you start out, like I started out freshman year, you come in, you get coached usually by a higher member on your beginning team, and you end up starting out on a lower team most of the time. We have about five teams. But all five teams have some kind of coaching, and then you, you slowly end up making your way up just like I did and Connor did um, to the A or B team towards the end. Coaches are involved at every end, but a lot of the environment is is just intense. I mean, our A and B team this year was just working really, really, really hard, and that's just what it's like when, when you get on this team because every year the expectation is to win. That's what it is. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that you said kind of the, the expectation is always to win. And I'll say that, you know, one of the hardest things about being a really, really top program like you guys, and at least in my head, I feel like this would be tough, is meeting those expectations each year. And in my head, I'm thinking back to 2021, you know, UCLA gets third at nationals. So 2022 rolls around, you're like, all right, well, we, we got to get third and we, or do better. And what do you do? You go and get second. So you're second place in 2022. And then what do you do in 2023? Well, you got to go and take it all, right? Uh, I, I just, it's hard to improve on 
such impressive showings each time, but you guys managed to do it. So Connor, maybe I'll go to you for a second. What is it, what is it like kind of being a part of the, the juggernaut that is UCLA mock trial and, and what is it like handling those expectations? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, I don't want to make it seem, you know, scary or bad. It's, it's a great time. Got pretty much my, my best friends in the world are on this team and we, we have a good time. But yeah, I mean, we work really hard in practice. It's, you know, we're always working the next thing. Everybody's doing different things. We've got like eight different rooms that we're sort of spreading out, just sort of taking over one of the buildings on UCLA campus that we don't technically reserve them. We just hope they're open and we show up and we just take as many rooms as we can to go work everyone's different pieces as much as we possibly can. So I think something that I remember uh, actually talking to to Yale about a while ago was sort of some of their their method behind some of their nationals prep and and how they did so so well at that highest level. Um, and I kind of am curious whether you guys think you guys have any techniques. I mean, obviously, I'm not asking you to like disclose trade secrets, but if there's anything that you guys feel like you're doing that makes a big difference on on the ability to perform so well at nationals. I mean, I think especially this year, seeing how well both your A and B team has done, uh, it, it, there's either something in the water over there or you're doing something different because um, it's clearly working. Uh, so I don't know, really to either of you, um, do you think there's anything about the way that you guys prep for nationals that uh, is different? Well, I think this year... Connor will talk even more on this. We, A-Team did something a little bit different, which was we kind of kept things up in the air for a while. Um, we were really jumping around theories with this case, and maybe it was this case itself, but roles weren't set in stone for, I want to say, almost a week. Theories weren't quite set in stone for that amount of time. Things were jumping around. But we kind of just had that fluidity with this Nationals case. We get everybody on the horn, other schools to scrim more, more, more. And we're changing theories on on a, a daily, really. We really felt comfortable just having, we talked about having multiple case theories, even, you know, going into Nats itself, just sort of being able to adapt to whatever round we were hitting. We wanted to just understand the case well enough to run any theory, really. You know, kind of that's so interesting for and for both of you to hear that perspective of just like diving into a case as quickly as possible. And so it, it kind of brings a natural follow up question, at least for me. And Connor, I'll stay with you first on this. This year's case, we talked to um, Justin and Sarah about this when we had them on the show before nationals, that you have this sort of meta case within a case aspect of this year's trial. And when we get to Connor, your opening statement a little bit later, you know, you kind of address that in, in your defense opening and, and so did, uh, Jessica and her plaintiff opening. But I have to imagine that that was an immediate significant source of discussion of like, okay, obviously we've got to prep for this, but this is a unique type of case that has these sort of like layered elements to it. So how did you all look at that and how did you tackle the prep of, of the nature of this particular nationals case? So it was definitely, I mean, obviously it was a, an interesting case that the case within a case was something we hadn't seen before. Um, I, I think our main focus was to try to make it as clear as possible when we were referring to one case or the other. We noticed that it immediately got confusing. What case you were referring to, like w when all of these events happened. So making it very clear when you're referring to the, the 2012 case versus the case at hand, that was sort of the focus of what we were doing there. 
And then there was a little experimentation along with it as what Connor did in the opening and then what Rhea did in her cross of Sky was we, we called it meta stuff, doing things that could have happened in that trial. We experimented with that almost on every witness in different ways. And that was a fun part with this this case. So you've prepped the case. Obviously, you arrive uh, to to Rhodes to, to compete at the national championship. Um, and so I just want to sort of break down your path a little bit and ask. I sort of have two separate questions. Um, and the first thing I want to do is go right to your round one. So your your A team, of course, and we'll get a chance to talk about your B team as well. But your A team went 11 and one. And your only loss in your entire path was actually in round one uh, when you went two and one against Hillsdale A, who ended up finishing in second place in your division. Um, and they were the only team who managed to take a ballot off of you all. Um, it was a plus 23, plus one, minus five for UCLA. So can you kind of give us a sense of that round? Because it's always fun to see. And usually the way the NCT pairings work, you usually see the number one and number two teams play. But it just so happened that that you guys drew the team that was going to finish second in the first round. So um, I, I don't remember exactly who's, who's talked last. So how about Connor? I'll go to you first. And, and then Michael, you know, what was that round against Hillsdale like? And, and did you start to get a sense as that round was going on? Like, oh, this, you know, this is a really, really critical round that, that could just in round one, you know, influence our path the rest of the way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, going into the round, we didn't really know much about Hillsdale. We honestly had no idea what to accept, ex- expect. We didn't know how tough that round was going to be. Um, but once we were there, yeah, they, they were definitely a, a force to be reckoned with. They were, they were extremely polished, extremely solid. We were going defense that round, which sort of let them control the narrative a little bit more with deciding what they were going to pursue and things like that. But yeah, no, they were, they were amazing. Yeah. I echo exactly what Connor said going into the round. Didn't really know much about Hillsdale by the end of the round. I was like, wow, this team is good. I don't know what happened. Well, and Michael, that, that actually brings up a perfect question that we want to follow up with, which is to the extent that you guys can, can talk about this. What's your, you know, going ballot blind, not going ballot blind. Like, how did that work for you guys at at Nationals? Yeah, so with this team in particular, this A team, most of the season, we did not go blind. And going into Nationals, we also didn't go blind. We felt that we can handle the pressure one way or another. So we, we knew after that round that we were 2-1. Gotcha. Um, and we knew it all the way through. Okay, interesting. Well, guys, if you know you're 2-1, I, I kind of... I. I I'm picturing in my head, okay, I'm UCLA. I'm expecting to be a top two, three finish. I just dropped around in my first round. What's the next step? Is there a, okay, well, we got to buckle down and get it done. Is there a, well, that was a tough round. At least they're out of the way. I mean, what's going through your minds at that point? And uh, because we're going to be careful about this, I'll go to Michael first. Yeah, I, I think it was more buckle down. It was like, okay, we, we can't lose this, another ballot at all. I think we were nervous after day one because, you know, you don't want to lose any ballots for your first round of nationals Uh, going into round two. Pretty nervous. I think we kind of got our momentum completely back after we saw the results from round two or didn't even look, know the ballots, knew that we were hitting you Chicago going into round three. That's when we were like, all right, we're back on the train. Let's keep let's keep on going. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Michael after the the good thing about that first round being on Friday night was that we had the rest of the night and, you know, the early morning to 
think about what happened to really buckle down, make the changes that we felt we needed. Cause that first round, it, it wasn't the cleanest round we had all, all the tournament. You know, it was, it was definitely a little nervous, a little jittery. And we got to make those changes in that, in that time on Friday night. Well, and, and it sounds like, as you guys alluded to, you know, turned it around in round two, kind of built some of that momentum back, you know, faced an Arkansas team that I have been very high on the whole year, but you kind of put them in their place. Um, and as you said, you know, you've got that, that round three matchup against, you know, the runner up from last year in Chicago, a, eh? I, you know, Mike, I know you kind of started to talk about it, but I'll ask, you know, a little more probing about to go into a round against Chicago middle of the second day, you know, are you, is there excitement? Is it nervous? Like what, what is the, the emotions that you guys are feeling going into that round? And then I'll kind of ask as a follow-up, you know, what happened afterwards, but uh, Connor, I'll go to you first here. Yeah. So that's the the second round of the day on Saturday. We were supposed to have uh, sandwiches delivered that we'd ordered. The whole team was supposed to, you know, get these sandwiches. We were supposed to eat them in the break between round. Uh, they never showed up. So not a single person on our team has eaten all day. Going into this third round, we are so excited. Though Chicago is one of the programs we are the absolute closest with. That trial, it felt like a national final round. It's one of the best rounds I've been in. Um, both sides were so responsive to everything that the other side was doing. They're so much fun. We love them so much. So it was it was an amazing round. Yeah, we were more than excited. That That round was probably my favorite from the weekend and that's counting the final round uh we love them and we were just we were rolling connor has good reason to say that was one of his best rounds because it was one of his best rounds along with his final round it was awesome so we loved it yeah i mean chicago is just you know we hit them round three at orcs they're they're always amazing but this year i think they were amazing they were one of the most unique teams out there you just like not that you're ever comfortable going in any round especially any round at nationals but you know, I'm about as uncomfortable as a coach going into a round against Chicago A because I'm like, I know they're going to do something and it's going to be different. It's going to be creative and, and it's going to be awesome. So I have no doubt that that was a great round. Um, for those who haven't looked at the tab summary, it was a plus one, plus eight, plus four for UCLA. So a, a sweep, but of course a close one. Um, and that puts you guys, you know, in pole position. You're, uh, I guess what, eight and one at that point. And then you've got Northwestern A the next morning. So you, you know, kind of control your path at that point. You know, that if you sweep Northwestern, get to 11, you know, that it's a pretty damn good chance that you're probably moving on. So Connor, I'll kind of, I'll follow up with you, you guys, based on what Michael said earlier, I assume you knew where you were. You knew that you kind of had your destiny in your hands. So what was it like Saturday night? And then take us through just kind of how that round with Northwestern went. Yeah. I mean, Saturday night, you know, it was, it was a lot of work again. You know, we, we, we sat down, we didn't go out to dinner. We added, you know, some, some of the people on the team go and grab some food for us and bring it back while we continued to work things. We, knowing where we were at, we knew that, yeah, if we won this round, if we won it cleanly, we were going to be going to the final. So that night we were still prepping both sides because we didn't know what we were going to be doing in the final potentially. So there was a lot of work to be done. And then the round itself, it was, it was great. I mean, when, when we got there, the other team, another team that we are, we absolutely love Northwestern. They're amazing. They had no idea that, um, they were where they were. They were going blind at that point. So it was a, it was a bit of an interesting thing where we couldn't really say anything to them, but also we're over in the corner talking about, 
you know, just get three, just do what we've been doing and then just try to close it out. Yeah. Whew. That Northwestern round, I, I tell you, I, I was an attorney in that one on the plaintiff and that was a close round. That one almost, I would say that felt closer than Chicago. Um, just in general, they, they fought that that was a tough round and the results say that when you look at the summary. Um, so that was a big relief to know at the end, you know, at award ceremonies after that round. But going into it, we just like all the other rounds at the tournament, we knew that it's very easy to slip in round four. And now you're not in the final round. So that Saturday night, I mean, I think I completely wrote a new cross when I remember. Yeah, no, I mean, and that for those who haven't seen the tab summary, it was a plus one, plus two, plus five for UCLA. So an unbelievably close round. I have obviously didn't see that round, but my guess is it was like some rounds that I've seen over the years. Round four at Nationals, you know, teams that obviously Northwestern, like you said, maybe didn't know exactly where they were. But you got to think by context clues, they're playing UCLA in round four at Nationals. They had a pretty good sense that they were doing well uh, as well. And two teams that are, you know, fighting for their for their lives. So you guys, of course, I mean, you find out at, at closing ceremonies that you win that round. So before we get into anything related to the final round, I do want to talk about one thing, uh, which is, of course, I assume um, that you, I mean, your team is is not going blind. I assume that, that your B team is the same. So a two-parter, which is, did did you guys on, on UCLA A know how well your B team was doing and or did you, you know, did you find that out at some point? And then obviously your B team comes in second on a tie break comes so incredibly close to getting a UCLA v UCLA final. So, I mean, how desperately did you guys want that to happen? How cool would that have been? Uh, and how sort of proud of you are you of the program as a whole um, for your showing? And Michael, I'll stick with you and, and go to you first on this one. So if I remember correctly, I think throughout the tournament, B team for at least the first three rounds was actually blind. Uh, there might have been a couple of people here and there who knew one thing or another thing. But I think going into ceremonies, they did know what had to happen. And I, for one, did. I, I'm not sure if Connor did. Knew how close we were uh, and how huge that was. Along with that, that was our goal. That was our expectation going into Nationals prep. When we did our B and A scrimmage, it was this is what we're going to do. We're going to make this all UCLA final round. And we were that close and it was tough. Um, obviously we were happy about how we did and ecstatic for our B team, but there was also feelings like, man, we were that close from doing that. Uh, B team. That's the goal next year. That's, that's the next step for us, really. <laughs> Guys, I said before, like, you know, you got third, you got second. Now you're first. Like at a certain point, you can stop trying to improve. I mean, goodness me. Still work to do, apparently. <laughs> I know. Uh, there you go. Uh, I think that it's funny, this whole, like, you know, the, the A and B team both being in the final round. I think people talk a lot about, you know, the Maryland rule um, when that initially was instituted to avoid having two teams in the final round. And I think that everyone kind of thinks as, oh, we don't really need it anymore because there's no way it would happen. Like in the modern mock trial it's just it's it's so unlikely that we would rather allow for uh the disparity within divisions and to not have impermissibles from the same teams uh 
I think you guys have proven that if if the rule ever comes back, it shouldn't be called the Maryland rule anymore, and it maybe should be called the UCLA rule. Um, it it is really really impressive. But I I also know that that I kind of jumped in earlier there, Connor. I'll I'll give you a chance if you wanted to say anything about about your B team. Um, go ahead and and, and share. Yeah. So, I mean, when we were stacking these teams back at the beginning of uh, our winter quarter, it, the idea was um, one of our coaches, Ian Lampert, is what he said. He said, the A team is going to win Nats and the B team is going to be so hungry that they're going to be right there with them. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. He called that one pretty early on. The What the B team did was amazing. We're so proud of them. All the hard work. It was devastating when they just barely missed out afterwards there's the talk of you know one point in this one round different and they would have been there with us but i mean obviously it was it was a great showing overall well i think that it it is safe to say that it is the most impressive program performance of any program in nationals uh in in the the new trial for nationals era um i I don't know anyone that's going to dispute that at this point. It really, really was amazing. And I, I will say that I think there's a, a special context for me as a law student who had just been at the law school nationals in which UCLA Law actually did have their two teams in the final round. And um, I think there would have been something, I, I'm not going to say beautiful because that is just so not the word that I would use to describe this, but something very terrifying, I think that's a better word, uh, to have UCLA versus UCLA undergrad and UCLA versus UCLA law. Um, that I, I would just at that point give up and, and move to Los Angeles because something is, is different down there. Um, but it, it really is impressive, you guys, and, and my hat is off to you. I'll, I'll kind of close out this, this section on the path by also mentioning that I think that whenever you make it to the final round, your path inherently has to be pretty impressive just because you're constantly facing one of the top teams, you know, in that round four, you have to face one of the other top teams. It's, it's a high, high pairing, but I think it is pretty crazy to me when you look at the fact that, I mean, as we said, Hillsdale got second, Chicago lost literally one ballot outside of their round with you guys. Again, same with Hillsdale. Northwestern, as we just discussed, was a super, super close round. They lost uh, three ballots outside of their rounds with you guys. Uh, I mean, Arkansas, I think, is also a very good team that had an unfortunate schedule because they had to face you guys, and that's the only reason they're, uh, they didn't end up doing better. But I think that there is a truly astounding performance when you are sweeping programs as good as the programs that you faced and i gotta think that going into that final round you guys were were really feeling yourselves and rightfully so but um i'll i'll, I'll toss it back to ben if he wants to get into uh, what that final round prep was like well i have a really important question that i want to ask for the two of you um and we're going to get into some of the details of the final round in a second but uh you guys put on a little show um before <laughs> you uh actually got into the final um i don't uh, for, for the actual recording, I don't have the clip ready, but we're going to drop the clip in here, uh, of, of what you guys did, uh, to choose your side. All right. We got a coin flip here. I got a coin. We're going to go heads for plaintiff, tails for defense. Here we go. We're going defense. 
So as we heard, uh, you guys sort of faked a, a coin flip. So uh, I don't know which one of you, I assume one of you probably takes responsibility or maybe the other. I don't know. But tell us how that came together and when that idea, just the whole thing, give me the whole background for the whole coin flip skit. Yeah. So actually, we have to give credit to someone who's probably talked about all the time, Mr. Ian Lampert. He's the one who told us, he's like, yeah, you guys got to do this coin flip thing. And I said, okay, we'll do this coin flip thing. Um, we'll go and do it. And I didn't know Connor was going to grab it, though, the, the way he did. Uh, but it, it was fun. And it, the funny thing behind it is Connor and I, whenever we do captains and walk around, our whole team calls us Burton Ernie from Sesame Street. <laughs> And so that was a bit of Burton Ernie action with the coin flip. <laughs> so Connor was grabbing the coin. Was that a was that an improv moment? What did what did what did you play there? That was a bit of an improv moment. I saw him <laughs> throw it up in the air. I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I'm just going to sort of knock it out of the air and say my line there. Um, yeah, it was definitely a a Burton Ernie moment. Why am I not surprised that this came from the mind of Ian Lampert? By the yeah. way, yeah, <laughs> most on brand content we've had. Yep. Friend of the pod, friend of many, many people. Um, so just to be clear, th there was never a circumstance in which the results of that coin flip were actually going to decide the side that you went in the final. Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay. Just making sure. So, so let me, uh, let me follow up on that exact point then. So obviously, you know, setting aside that whole thing, you guys decided that you were going to select defense. Now we talked about this in our nationals analysis episode that the case ended up playing out somewhat, not massively, but somewhat defense biased. Um, but one interesting thing that I noted is that by, by going defense, it actually put Harvard on the opposite side that they went against your B team because they played your B team uh, in the opposite division. Uh, Harvard took two out of three in that round. So just take us through the thinking. And, and Connor, I'll, I'll stick with you first on this one. What was the thinking behind choosing to go defense in the national final round? So, I mean, our decision to go defense was based on what we thought would work best for us regardless of what Harvard was doing on the other side, regardless of what our team had, uh, our B team had hit on that side. We thought that, you know, we, we had an idea that the case was a little bit defense biased going into it. Honestly, we thought that it was pretty extremely defense biased before Nats, but it ended up being less than we thought, I think. But um, yeah, overall, we just picked the side that we thought was going to be able to be stronger, was going to show more dynamism in that final round something that would be fun or funny or different yeah i i would echo that so that that was our primary reason and then going into ceremonies i was almost writing down in my head all the other reasons why we should go defense uh knowing the bias our coaches knew the bias we knew that was going one way so so we knew that was strategically also a good decision but along with that our seniors so connor and emily we're both seniors, and I thought, what better way to make them let, let them have this run as defense than have them in this final round? So that was a big reason to see Connor. Connor got to open, rightfully so, in his last year, in his last draw. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I've been saying since this case came out that I thought it was very defense biased, as you know, all, all four of us in that episode all thought it was defense biased. I think it's the right decision, and clearly it worked out. The case authors agreed with you, so like, yeah, yeah there's that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, the only thing that I can ever think of as a reason to want, I, I, obviously, if the case is P-biased, it's P-biased. But I can always see the, okay, well, we really want to control and make sure we get our witnesses in. I'm kind of just curious, were, was that 
ever like a, a concern of yours? I mean, you, you called one of the swing witnesses, but were you confident in your ability to, to, you know, kind of work around if you don't get that witness? I'd, I'd done probably. So I would do the Fernandez direct or the Carter director cross, whatever that was, I'd be taking the direct and cross of it. I'd done about 50, 50 on what I'd been running that entire tournament. Um, I'd, I'd had a chance to work on both to do both. We had a pretty decent idea that they were going to be taking Fernandez because that's what we'd seen the majority of teams do. Um, so we felt pretty comfortable that, you know, either one we get, we're going to be ready for it. We did think we were going to be getting the Carter, which is what happened. I think that the the next thing naturally that kind of comes in this procession of the events leading up to nationals and, and at nationals, uh, as people know that, that watch the live stream or have since purchased the final round, um, you guys had to use microphones during the, during it. And I will say for one that that is in my mind, a huge obstacle that you in no stretch of the imagination would have ever prepared for before ever thought it through. And one of the things to me that is most impressive about the round is how, at least in my mind, how seamless both yourselves and Harvard made working with microphones seem. So I'm just kind of curious, at what point did you guys find out about it? And and what was the adaption process like? What was the logic behind it? And Connor is the, the first person that really performed with it. I'll, I'll go to you first. But how was dealing with the microphones? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we found out about the mics just before the round started, maybe 15 minutes before, after captains, we were sort of trying to set everything up. Some people were already sitting down at council table to sort of get everything ready. And they walked over and told us that we would have to use a, an actual microphone if we wanted to be heard on the live stream. Um, there was definitely some talk back and forth with with our coach and with some of the other people at council table about like whether we even wanted to use the microphone, whether we would just say no to the microphone and just present like we normally do. And the people in the back of the room and on the live stream might not be able to hear us perfectly, but everyone who was scoring would, and we just do our normal thing. Um, ultimately, we decided that, you know, let's just let's just run with it. Like, we're ready to adapt to anything. And I, I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, quite honestly, I think uh, when I was a witness, I was probably a little too close to the mic. I'm not great with tech. From what I remember, I was a little loud coming into those answers. Uh, but it was it was the same thing. I mean, uh, for attorneys, I think it was much harder, whereas witnesses were kind of, you know, relaxing at the, the witness stand, trying to speak into it. But you've got old man Suleiman over there trying to <laughs> hold a microphone. And that's a whole thing, too. Oh yeah, you know that I noticed that in my rewatch uh I, when I was rewatching recently of like different witnesses doing different things uh with the microphone um and just sort of adapting to that. So, um Connor, you Drew alluded to this a moment ago uh, about how you uh as, you know, giving uh the opening statement for the defense, um, you know, you and and Jessica who opened for Harvard were sort of the two main people who who sort of did something first uh away from counsel table. So, I just want to, there's a couple moments in trial that I want to highlight and your opening statement is one of them. Um, and I, and I hope that, that you'll see this as the praise that, it, that it is. I think that your opening statement is likely to like, I think if you look at, at opening statements in AMTA in the next couple of years, you're going to see them change across the community to be more like the opening statement you gave. I thought it was organic. I thought it was as clear as any opening that I've watched in a long time. 
And I just thought it was so well performed, basically every element of it. And to be clear, you know, we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about Harvard, but obviously Harvard was incredible. It was an unbelievable final round. And and they, as defending champions, you know, pushed you guys about as far as they possibly could have. But take me through that opening statement and just how it came together and how you felt about it in the final, because I thought it was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the, the opening itself went through a lot of drafts. The the like bare bones structure was sort of the same thing I'd been running all year. So I was comfortable with sort of the order of things, having a very responsive pocket up near the top before I really get into what we're doing. Um, there were a few different versions. We went through different sort of like meta versions, like we talked about sort of how to play on the, the case within a case. Ultimately, we decided that since there's just there was there was really so much that the plaintiff would need to cover in their opening with whatever they're running and also addressing the case and also addressing uh, Sky and sort of the, all the, the the horrible things that happened to them, it was just going to be too much for them. So the idea for my opening was to quickly connect with the jurors by drawing the connection between them sitting here today and and the jurors back in that 2012 trial, and then acknowledging the harm that was done to sky and using that emotion as the defense connor and and i genuinely you know don't know as much about about this so so i'm just kind of curious is is opening your when you're an attorney is that sort of your usual role or do you kind of move around a little more i've pretty much done opening um almost almost every time you know there there are a couple years i think my my freshman and sophomore year i was middling but i've I've never closed other than one uh, side switch scrimmage where we were sort of <laughs> just sort of just uh, trying things out. Other than that, I've, I've only ever opened. So let me ask you this, and I want to go to Rhea's Cross in just a second here, but I'm just kind of spitballing based on on what you're saying. So, there's a lot of great openers in AMTA, but what, what struck me about yours is you sounded like an opener. There's a lot of great closers who also sometimes open, and they give really good, super intense opening statements. And it felt to me as a as a practicing lawyer who's been in many trials and, and seen many trials, your opening felt very authentic in terms of like, I'm not going to try to, you know, like knock the jurors over. I'm not going to try to outshout anyone in the room. I'm going to be really practical and really methodical. So as someone who has so much high level experience opening, how do you see your approach more broadly to an element that I think is sometimes overlooked in AMTA? Yeah, so I'd say um, one of the main things about my opening that I struggle with that somehow like leans into this angle you're talking about as being something good is I lack uh, sort of vocal range. So I'm mostly staying in that middle part. I'm not getting super screaming at the at the jurors about what to believe. I'm also not getting super quiet. I'm sort of just laying out the facts, um, which has has helped me in the past. It's definitely hurt me in the past. That's kind of the reason we tried to use the the sky emotion on the defense to give me something to sort of feel throughout that opening in a way that wasn't anger. It was sorrow for the wrong thing that's happened to someone. Sorrow is such a good word there. That's that's like the perfect encapsulation. And, and I we certainly don't need to sit here and, and break down every word of, of a great opening. I won't put you through that. But I will say that I think you're I think you have tremendous vocal range. I just think it's different from what a lot of people have. Um, and I was just really impressed by it. Uh, I want to focus on one other element, and then I know Drew's got questions about a co- couple of other elements as well. And Michael, I'll toss this question to you. And that is, you know, you guys alluded to this earlier, but Rhea's cross of Travis. And first of all, just 
like what a intense moment early in trial you have you know travis harper one of the best competitors in amta defending national champion playing the plaintiff did an unbelievable job in such a, a deep and 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 powerful role and then Rhea has this cross that becomes a cross within a cross and you you do a, like i almost imagine it like a you know a throwing a, a sepia filter and doing like a flashback scene right so how did you guys come up with that what was the organic process like for that and, and and the risk reward element of doing this like stepping into the shoes of the prosecutor just kind of take us through how that came to be yeah so again that's what we call what we label during our nationals prep the meta stuff the meta cross it's this new angle where we're going to step in the past and we started coming up with the idea right there in that three-day scrimmage uh for multiple witnesses uh Suleiman's on the other side as a p attorney he did something similar if i remember for the sing cross uh, things along those lines but what we ultimately came to when we were doing our nationals prep was the best way to do sky is to do this and i want to say this was probably one of ria's hardest crosses she had to do she's on the other side the p closer and she does the gold cross which she kills she kills defendants it's just what she does and to her now reverse to do this meta backwards sky cross where the sky might be crying or the sky might be angry looking at me like travis did in that final round um had me really feeling bad um and, and doing all those things we, we knew the meta stuff was going to work going into nats but it was definitely a high risk to take yeah uh we originally came up with it for the jamie young cross the affair witness as a way to sort of take them back to that moment and show the jury what would have happened if they had actually taken the stand. And yeah. then it just ended up being perfect for both Sky and Young. We never got to actually use the Young version of it because no one called them. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was also a way for Rhea, who, as Michael mentioned, um, crossed gold on the other side, great defendant crosser, to turn a sympathetic cross into a defendant cross for a second to get to show that angle of it and then also step back and be sympathetic. You know, something that, that I've been thinking about as both of you were, were just discussing that, that moment, that meta moment, but also a lot of just the way that you approach the case. It's something that occurred to me as I'm listening to the round too, is just that you do a really excellent job of having these moments that kind of ring true to a listener and I, I mean, I think that that's sort of an obvious take, like, of course, that's good to do. But I think that those, okay, let's talk about what this really looked like in that moment. And I feel like when I first read the case, that was exactly my thought. And I had the the same, yeah, that's why I'm going to really struggle to see a P case winning because I can understand why gold made some of these decisions this way or, or why the prosecutors, you know, like it, I'm like, okay, I can see that. And I don't know that I would have been able to articulate it as well. I, I know I couldn't have articulated as well as you guys did, but I just wanted to mention that I think that what made those moments so powerful is that you're kind of giving words to those thoughts that we have in our mind of like, yeah, like, that is what I'm thinking about this. So I just wanted to mention that I, I really thought it was a cool moment. And, and it really was, 
I, I'm glad that Ben brought it up because I think it was such a great moment in the trial. One other one that I wanted to mention really quickly, um, and and I'll I'll cater this one specifically uh, to you, Michael. Um, but the witness portrayals that you guys did, I, I found it really fascinating. Um, and I, I don't want to go through all three of them, but I'll focus specifically on Suleiman's portrayal of Morgan Carter because I, I got to say, I think that we've seen a lot of really kind of outlandish witnesses or surprising characterizations of it. I definitely did not see coming the old man Carter, uh, for lack of a better um, description of it. But I mean, down to the beginning of the trial with, with him covered up by this newspaper the whole time. Um, I loved it. I was sitting there. I was like, oh my gosh, like the, it, the round has started and it was really, really cool to see. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, where did that witness um, even come from for you guys? What made you guys think you wanted to try it? And what was the workshopping process like that? Uh, was he ready for that role in that way on day one at those pod scrimmages or was that something that kind of got workshopped? So this, uh, this comes with a pretty funny story. Uh, when Suleiman was first stacked on Ng, he was an attorney with me on the P side, with myself and Rhea. Suleiman was not a witness. He was mostly an expert witness when he did play witnesses in the fall and in other seasons. But never did he play a character witness, nor did he ever play an old man. It was going into regionals that one of our great witnesses, Emma Rose, who is was Robin Sky at Nationals, and she also plays characters a lot on defense, she was sick going into regionals. And we needed people to play character witnesses on defense. We knew Soleiman had this accent that he threw out one day, one practice to actually mess with Rhea on cross. And I said, well, why don't we do that? And it slowly developed with a lot of work from him and Connor, his directing attorney, to come up with this crazy old British man who ended up doing great at regionals, awarding at regionals. And we said, has to happen somehow at nationals. And Suleiman completely took on that role of holding that newspaper in the corner of the room back at regionals and continued it all the way through. Connor, I'll go to you as, as his directing attorney. What was that like? I, I mean, it was pretty wild. Like at regionals, we we were not sure what to expect when we had him suddenly pick up this witness. He was playing both a Shahid as as a as an old man who pretended to be a wizard, and Gelfand as a Air Force a British Air Force pilot. And he was still just, with the newspaper. Still with the newspaper, <laughs> sitting in the corner. His favorite thing to do would be to find the most ridiculous seat in the room, not usually if he could avoid sitting with our team, somewhere off in the corner so he just looks like a random old man spectator, and then only ever leave that spot when he's called up to the stand. He absolutely loved playing that character from what I could tell. He was having so much fun with it. It was a great time. And and I'll just say that there's this great moment for me in the round where the judge truly seemed concerned. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a real authentic, like, are you going to be okay getting there? And I mean, I think that, I think there's a certain amount of the judge playing along with it, but it, it, it made it such a great moment. And I feel like 
it's it's really cool and really special when that realism feels like it's i mean it's fun obviously but i feel like wow like people are taking this seriously like this really is happening and i mean it was a a very cute moment but i mean i love the way that he played it off obviously i think it was very cute but um i just i loved that moment i thought that witness was fantastic and obviously i mean michael you also played Aubrey Gold, and I thought you were brilliant as well as Aubrey Gold. And I'll, I'll kind of also ask you, you know, what was the the decisions that you kind of made in deciding to play Aubrey Gold, Audrey Gold, sorry, um, and and how you decided to to take on that? You know, what do you think was kind of the method behind your decisions there? Yeah, so kind of like Suleiman, that one was the same way. I didn't attorney at all, or I'm sorry, I didn't witness at all. Going into our season, I was an attorney in the winter. And then going into spring, I had always joked with our coaches. I, I co- joked with Smiley all the time where I said, hey, you know, I'm telling you, there's going to be this witness at Nats and you're going to want me to witness. I'm going to get to do it. And it just ended up that Aubrey Gold was that witness. Everyone told me just just be you as an attorney. And that's really all it was. Um, of course, I had a lot of help. I had uh, coaches like Cody Smith and, and Brandon Benjamin, who sat down with me and just pushed me through what it means to be a varsity witness and to set up those moments that you kind of mentioned before. We make moments. That that was the big part of this Nationals run. Hmm. We make we make moments. That's so interesting. That's like just encapsulates a lot of what you guys have talked about. And I think that you know, just to echo what Drew said, I thought Michael, I thought your performance was brilliant in the final. That that role. The defendant in a not going to say a nondescript role, but but you know, sort of like a a less defined part can be so hard. Um, it can be so challenging, and I thought that you did um a really incredible job with it. Um, so let's move forward to sort of wrap up this conversation by talking about you know how things ended up. So we've had the opportunity to do this a couple of times when we've talked to national champions on the podcast. So I'm going to do it again. I imagine that the two of you, as well as your teammates, have probably watched and listened to the announcement a couple of times um, over the last couple of weeks. But I'm going to play it here because I just kind of want to get you guys' reactions. So you obviously finished the round. There are so many other moments. You know, we could sit here and talk for hours about the incredible performance of of each of your teammates. I thought everyone who who we haven't spoken in much detail about so far, you know, was incredible. Top to bottom, I mean, your team was just impeccable. Harvard was amazing. Uh, and so let's listen to the final round announcement. And then, Connor, I'm going to go to you first. And then, Michael, I'm just interested in, you know, what your initial feeling, your initial reaction was to the announcement. So here it is. So we had a close round. Four ballots in favor of the plaintiff. Four ballots in favor of the defense. And a one-point ballot deciding the 38th AMTA National Championship winner, UCLA. All right, so so Connor, I'll go to you first. Obviously, you guys fought so hard to get to that point. What was your initial reaction? How did it feel in the moment to win the national championship? Yeah, I mean, obviously it felt... I I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, I... I started out, so this is my last year. That was my last round ever that I got to do to get to win was, was 
insane. I was on the the B team my my freshman year. We were going to go to Nats, and then it got canceled because of COVID. Then I came back the next year. I was on A team. We got third in our division. Then I was again there. We got second in our division, and finally to cap it off with a win. I mean, it was pretty great. That's that's kind of all I can say. It's a pretty storybook if there is one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think storybooks <laughs> are a great word. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I heard that plus one, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that. Uh, yeah, it, it was awesome. I had the same feelings as Connor. I was on the last year's team when we got second. Of course, facing Harvard in that round three last year, knowing they were going to hit us hard after what they did to be in this Nationals, and then hitting them in that final round to have that close um of a margin is huge so big credit and props to harvard for doing that every year and probably going to continue to do that uh but it was an amazing feeling to kind of say like yeah i did it we we got one um so that was awesome well i think that you know you guys have had a, a few weeks i think we're approaching a, a full month now away from it and i kind of wondered now stepping forward to where you are now what is the feeling now? Is it, I, I'm assuming there's got to be the, the satisfaction of, of, you know, setting, accomplishing what you set out to do. But just looking back on this experience as a whole, what are your takeaways and, and what are some of the next steps? And, and Connor, I'll, I'll start with you as, as our senior. Yeah. I mean, um, what a season, you know, it was, it was something going into it. I, had no idea what to expect. We had a lot of seniors who had graduated that last year. There were a lot of decisions about, you know, what we were going to do with this 18, 18, like what we were going to be trying to, trying to do, making these moments, how we were going to do that. Um, looking back on it, I, I just feel so grateful to have been on that team, to have been with this program the, the whole time. I got to shout out uh, Smiley, who's basically running the program at this point. She's our, our our coach. She has been working with me all four years, and she is just amazing. I know the program is going to continue to be so amazing. And, and Michael, I'll pass it to you too. What, what's you know, as a junior who has another year left in him, I'm I'm hopeful that you're going to be coming back. But what what is the the takeaway from all of this for you? And and how do you feel about the season? Yeah, so I, I've got two things. I mean, my first thing is feelings just like Connor. I think going in, I remember Connor told me because of last year, we lost so many people. It's kind of like, well, this could be kind of a rebuilding year for A-Team. We're going to bring up a lot of juniors and a lot of people who um, weren't originally on A-Team. We're going to try to rebuild, make a good run and set it up for my senior year. Turns out that's not what happened. We set up a Nationals winning team and and that's how it ended up. And it was all because of the push that our B team had, our B team was really, really good all season. Our coaches from, you know, shout out to, to Cody Smith, Ian Lampert, um, John Freshman, all those guys, Brandon Benjamin at the end, they came in and they, they pushed us up for that Nationals run. So I'm extremely grateful for it. Going into now, like kind of like what I said before, my senior year and having a lot of those B team members either move up to A or stay on B, it's... The next step's uh, UCLA final round, UCLA v. UCLA. That's what we're pushing for. That's that's the mindset going into this next season. <laughs> Look, I, you know, if there was ever any doubt that you guys could do it, there shouldn't be now because you were one point away from doing it this year. No reason to expect that, you know, that next year's going to be any different. Well, we really appreciate both of you 
uh, coming on the show. I, I said this to Travis and Stella last year. You know, I have the good fortune of, of, of knowing what it feels like to win a national championship. Uh, take the time to experience it, to savor it. Um, you know, my biggest regret, I think that I said this to them last year. My biggest regret was we never took the trophy on a boat. You guys have a, have water <laughs> close to you. So take the trophy on a boat. Um, have fun with it. Uh, enjoy it. It's such an amazing thing. And you guys deserve it. You guys were incredible. Your whole team. Um, there are so many moments in the trial. You know, we haven't talked about, um, some of the other, you know, the impeachments, uh, Emily's closing, which I thought was incredible. So many moments in, in the trial that I think are going to be used as teaching tools for years to come. So congratulations to both of you. Um, and I'll sort of go one as a, one at a time here to wrap us up. Connor, first, thank you so much for, for taking some time to come on, sh- on the show. Congratulations. And, and we appreciate you making time to chat with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been, this has been great. And Michael, same thing. Congratulations. Uh, obviously best of luck next year. I'm sure we'll, we'll see you, uh, doing great things next year, but thanks again for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. This, this was great. This was awesome. Thanks you guys. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you guys, you know, making time. I'm sure it's a busy time of year with finals approaching and everything. So thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate everyone's patience. Obviously all of our schedules had to line up for us to do this episode. So thanks to Michael and Connor for making the time to, to come on and talk about their championship. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back in your feed real soon with some more interesting summer coverage. we got a lot of fun things coming up uh, and a lot of interesting things to talk about. And before we know it, it's going to be uh, August 15th. We're going to be talking about next year's case. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. Until we are in your feed again, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Ben.